Let, let me pray and then we'll look at John's gospel together. Uh, dear God, I do thank you for these friends, um, brothers and sisters who want to spend this time this way. Um, we do want um, your word to be clear to us. We want to see it, hear it. Pray that um, I would not stand in the way of that, um, but that together we would uh, learn and grow and see things more clearly. Um, we do thank you for your good gifts. We thank you for this day, um, for every good gift that we receive from your hand. And we do thank you for this work um, and this word that you've given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, um, again, you need a a copy of the text in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one from somewhere and we'll look at John's gospel today. What I want to do is look at the section of John's gospel that runs parallel to what we've been looking at in Matthew, Mark and Luke, namely the period that takes us from Peter's profession of faith uh, all the way into the entry into Jerusalem for the final week of Jesus's life. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Peter's profession then is followed immediately um, by the transfiguration episode. In John, we have a slightly different kind of a profession of faith. It comes at the end of Jesus' discourse about being the bread of life. And at the end, um, when Jesus is talking about the need to drink his blood and eat his flesh, and people are getting freaked out. And leaving, um, Jesus turns to his own disciples and asks them what they're going to do. And Peter, again, is the one who speaks and, and says, um, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so that's the profession of faith from Peter in John's account. And that happens right at the end of chapter 6. So then in John's gospel, chapter 7 through 11, uh, cover the same um, period that we've been looking at in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, But before we look at those chapters specifically, just a few thoughts about John's gospel. Um, One is that uh, pretty much everyone sees this as the fourth of the four gospels to be written, and and probably pretty, you know, significantly later than the other three. I think particularly maybe what's worth noting is that this would have been written after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in uh, 70 um, CE. Um, So it's the fourth, and it does have a kind of a reminiscent character. I think pretty clearly we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke established in some kind of form. Um, How broadly distributed manuscripts would have been is hard to say. But the story of Jesus as understood in those Gospels, I think, would be available. And now what we've got is a kind of reminiscent um, book that in which John, the elderly apostle, um, reflects back and adds a lot of insight, a lot of material. It focuses particularly on Jesus's own words and teaching. It's going to give us much more of a philosophical and theological kind of a tone than the others have. If you want to see the contrast most clearly, compare Mark and John. Mark, remember, is an action gospel, just action one after another. Very little by way of teaching and very short snippets when you do have teaching. John, on the other hand, has extended 
uh, passages of Jesus' own teaching and Jesus' own words. At the end, um, John is writing to affirm the view of Jesus as the Christ. As I say, all four Gospels um, make that argument. Um, John says at the end of the Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So at the end of his gospel, John gives us a nice clear statement of purpose the way Luke does at the beginning of his gospel. One way to understand the gospel is to think of it as the Jerusalem gospel. Uh, The overwhelming amount of what goes on in John's gospel happens in or near Jerusalem. Uh, You can sort of think from the very beginning in the first chapter, we meet John the baptizer and Jesus is spending time in the same uh, neighborhood as John down by the Jordan River. But by the time we're just barely into chapter two, Jesus has or John has um, Jesus going into Jerusalem. That's where you have a, an account of a cleansing of the temple and the interaction with Nicodemus Um, at the end of chapter three is when we see Jesus getting out of John the baptizer's way. Um, And so Jesus heads up to Galilee by way of Samaria. We have the story of the woman at the well in chapter four. And then in chapter five, um, right away, we got Jesus coming back into Jerusalem. Uh, Now it seems John is imprisoned and Jesus's formal ministry begins and John's account of that ministry. And right away, you're in Jerusalem again. In chapter six, John takes us out to the feeding of the 5,000, um, which would have been back up north, uh, closer to the Sea of Galilee, it would seem. Um, but then in chapter seven, we're back in Jerusalem. And from chapter seven on, all the way through chapter 20, we're either in Jerusalem or very close to it in places like Bethany, for instance, just a, a small village just outside of Jerusalem. And then a couple of places where Jesus will get away um, because of the danger to his life. Um, but it really is a Jerusalem gospel and well worth keeping in mind that way. You get the impression at some places where that you really are getting a kind of a supplement to the other gospels um, in, in which we, we see that Jesus was spending time in Jerusalem. Um, an aspect of that then is interesting is that this also connects to John structuring his gospel around uh, Passover feasts and other feasts. Um, there are four specific Passover feasts mentioned in John's gospel. The first one you can find in chapter two. There's a reference to it in verse 13. This is where um, Jesus is uh going from Capernaum up to Jerusalem in verse 13 of chapter two, we read, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There's further reference to that in the next uh, chapter and a half or so. And then a second feast is referred to at the beginning of chapter five. Um, and, and, I, and I'll just say the first four chapters of John seem to all take place before Jesus steps out into his public ministry. Remember, I've, I've argued, and I think it's pretty consistently clear in the Gospels, that Jesus does defer to John and in John, John the baptizer. And so in John's Gospel, um, those first four chapters are really kind of preliminary. And you don't get to Jesus's public ministry until the beginning of chapter five. 
And then within just a few chapters, you're going to end up in Jerusalem. So John covers the entire period of Jesus's ministry in just about a half a dozen chapters. But at the beginning of chapter five, then we read, and after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say specifically that it's passed over, Passover, but the language, the feast of the Jews would, would almost necessarily be taken as a reference to the feast and the Passover. Um, would clearly have been that one. Uh, we get the fourth Passover reference in connection to the feeding of the 5,000. And this is kind of interesting because I don't think this is clear in the other Gospels. Um, in chapter 6, verse 4, John says that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then you get the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Then one more happens in John 11. At the very end of that chapter, we've had the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead and um, and of the danger that there is for Jesus. So in verse 54, we're told that Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is not far from Jerusalem, but he's getting out for safety's sake. And then 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so then you go on into this Passover that turns out to be the final Passover for Jesus that he would celebrate with his disciples. So you've got that four Passover sequence. The first one happening while John the Baptist is still active and Jesus hasn't quite stepped out yet. And then the second, third, and fourth ones, all sort of markers in the, the few years that Jesus was publicly um, ministering in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Between the Passover in chapter six, in connection with the feeding of 5,000, and the Passover at the end of chapter 11, which will be the final Passover, John gives us these um what is it, five chapters, chapters 7 through 11. And in those chapters, he gives us two more festivals. So at the beginning of chapter 7, okay, chapter 6 being the feeding of the 5,000 and the discourse about the bread of life, beginning of chapter 7 now, um, John gives us the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 2. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. Initially, Jesus says he's not going up, and then he does go up, and all of chapter 7 and 8, it would seem, take place in that Feast of Tabernacles. That's in chapter 7, and then in chapter 10, verse 22, we get the Feast of Dedication. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Um, and, and the episodes there in those next few verses then take place at the Feast of Dedication. And then you get to the Passover again in chapter 11. So it sort of lays out as a year there. And you've got to be careful um, not to be too rigid in how we would read this. But at least the way it presents right now is that the Passover in chapter 6 would be in the spring. Passover comes in the spring. Tabernacles happens in the fall. 
dedication, as it says, happens in winter. And then you come back around to the spring to the next Passover. So, so we've got at least what appears to be a year in Jesus's ministry going from chapter six to the end of chapter 11 and into the final, final week. Um, those are helpful markers. And then to fill in a little bit more between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, we've got two significant pieces of the puzzle. One of them is in chapter nine, Jesus healing the blind man. And then in chapter 10, first half of chapter 10, Jesus presentation of himself as the good shepherd. And then after the Feast of Dedication, uh, we see Jesus moving around a little bit because there is danger and his life is definitely being threatened. And so he does get out of Jerusalem, but he doesn't go very far. He heads down toward the Jordan. Um, he comes back up when he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And then Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. This happens in a little village just outside of Jerusalem. Again, because of the danger, Jesus slips out of town and heads back down toward the, the Jordan again. But in neither case does it seem that he's there very long. And then he comes back up um, in, in chapter uh, 12, and, and it will be for the final week of his life. Um, I will say it's not a bad idea to sort of just get a sense of the flow of these Gospels. And John is one where you can do that. These um, uh, festivals, the feasts, uh, can, can help frame that for you. Um, but just kind of reflecting back with me, I guess none of Sikora, you were there in the first half of this class, but um, whether you didn't need to be there in the first half of the class, you know, that first chapter is John the baptizer. It's that great opening, the word made flesh, and then John the baptizer and John's disciples moving toward Jesus and going with him back to Galilee. In chapter two, you've got the movement down into Jerusalem the cleansing of the temple and the interaction with Nicodemus. Jesus then gets out of John's way and heads back up into Galilee, we're told, late in chapter three. And so in chapter four, we're in Samaria as he's moving back up uh, to get out of John's way. And you have the story of the woman at the well with him. Um, in chapter five, some more episodes in um, Jerusalem. In chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000. And then chapter seven, as I say, we got the Feast of Tabernacles. A little bit after that, you've got the Feast of Dedication in between the healing of the blind man and Jesus's picture of himself as the good shepherd. Chapter 10, um, we're, we're um, uh, in the Feast of Dedication. And then uh, chapter 11 is raising Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 12, we're into Jerusalem for the final week. Um, to go ahead and look then at this, these passages, these six chapters or so from chapter seven to chapter 11, um, I just want to try to see some of the themes that John is developing here. And particularly, not just the ways that John presents Jesus, but that Jesus presents himself. Um, but before we launch into that, let me just pause. Are there questions you have about anything that I've said so far about John's gospel or its structure or the feasts or anything. So do the feasts always take place in Jerusalem? And that's why they like all go back to Jerusalem every time. It's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the exact or the fullest answer. 
they'd certainly be centered in Jerusalem. I mean, that that's where you would want to be. Um, what it would have looked like to be in Nazareth, for instance, or or just somewhere in Jericho or something at the time of the feast is a great question. I honestly don't know the answer. Um, whatever, whatever it would have been, now what would it compare to? The difference between being in Washington, Philadelphia, or Boston for July 4th, or putting off fireworks in your backyard in Gainesville. I, you know, I, I don't know. That's a really crass analogy, but just Jerusalem is where you want to be. It was better than the example I was thinking of. I was thinking of Mardi Gras, just how that's what's going on right now. Like you, you want to be in Louisiana, but you can still celebrate at home in whatever state you're in. Yeah, there you go. Um, always imagine in these situations in the Gospels. Now, Caleb and I are thinking along similar lines. I'm sure you could get a more, a more, uh, better informed answer than we can give you, but great question. Any other questions I don't know the answers to? Um, well, let's go ahead and look at the, at the content then of these chapters. Um, and beginning chapter seven, you won't read, um, a lot per se, but um, the uh, first way that Jesus presents himself in this Feast of Tabernacles in chapter seven, verse thirty-seven, is as the um, the the living water. On the last day, we're we're told in chapter seven, verse thirty-seven, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, "If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink." He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, This is the first image, and both this uh, imagery of the water and then the imagery of the light correspond with aspects of the celebration of the feast um, where um, there is this uh, sort of a water ritual. Um, and it, seem, it would seem to be in the context of that, that Jesus cries out, um, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is a great image. It may be familiar to you. It is in a sense familiar to us already just in the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus presents himself as the living water for the woman at the well in chapter 4. But here it does have a a little different look, doesn't it? Um, there it was water that you never have to drink again that gives you everlasting life. Here it is for the thirsty. That would be true of, of the woman there as well. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Um, how thirsty have you ever been? <laughs> you, you've almost certainly had times of being genuinely thirsty, even if it's just a day or a half a day where you've been hiking or working and it's hot and it's dry and, and you really do feel the, the thirst. Um, 
That's a great image. Are you thirsty? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink cool, clear, refreshing water that gives life. There is no nothing more fundamental, more life-giving and sustaining than water. None of us last long without it. And to even try to go a little while without it is a very uncomfortable, awful feeling. Let, let these images do their work. They are so simple. And, and in many cases, we're so familiar with them that, that we've, we've lost sight of them. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let me become for him this life-giving, wonderful slaking of thirst. And then let that drink, which is me, Jesus says, become a, a flowing river of living water from your innermost being. The gift of the Spirit, Jesus in you, you in Jesus, and the imagery is of a bubbling fountain flowing from within. I I was blessed to have a, a gentleman preach at my ordination service in a previous lifetime who had actually been my dad's pastor. Um, and uh, at the time I was ordained, my dad had, had was already gone, had been, passed away. But this elderly pastor, who was a real statesman of the church and who had been back in the 1930s had actually been defrocked by his denomination because of his stand on scripture and on the divinity of Christ and the resurrection being a reality and those kinds of things. And he was, he was literally defrocked, meaning they took his ordination away from him. They took his church away from him. They put padlocks on the building. He lost his retirement, etc. Everything gone. This, this was an extraordinary generation. This was one of those people. Um, and I was blessed to know him when I was young, and then he preached at my ordination. Um, it wasn't on that occasion, but but this is the kind of guy I'm talking about where I heard him preach on another occasion from this passage. And and I can still see his face talking about rivers of living water sort of flowing and bubbling up within. And and the look on Dr. Laird's face showed that that bubbling of the spirit. Um, I'll tell you, I, I, I long for this. I encourage you in this. Never be satisfied. Um, always seek more of that, that living water that bubbles up and flows from within. Um, I, I think even the, even the fact that water is the kind of thing you've got to keep drinking <laughs> is very helpful here, isn't it? That's, that's how that, that river just flows as you keep drinking and then that river bubbles up within. I, I linger over this partly because as I, I just said, these, these images are so simple in a sense and, and become too familiar and we forget the extraordinary work that's being done here as Jesus would have first said this and 2000 years later. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The next image that he uses is over in chapter 8 in verse 12. And it says again, 
Jesus spoke to the people saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Another wonderful image. It's rooted in the Hebrew scriptures and the picture of the word of God and the commandments of God as a light to our path. And now Jesus, who is the living word, comes to be the light of the world. As long as you have me, you will not walk in darkness, he says. And in chapter 9, he will once again refer to himself as the light of the world in verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he heals the man who was born blind and gives him sight, adding a whole nother dimension to what it would mean that Jesus is the light of the world. But to just stay with the chapter eight a minute. Um, in addition to that image of himself, we then get into what is a very interesting um way that Jesus presents himself, and that is as the I am, the I am God, the God who presented himself to Moses back in Exodus 3 as the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, on the one hand, the God of history and of his people. And when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? The Lord says, tell him I am has sent you that that great profound identity of God as the I am the the fundamental being of all being I am in John chapter 18 we are in the garden of Gethsemane on Jesus's final night and when they come to get him you may be familiar with this um They come to get him, and in verse 4 of chapter 18, Jesus goes out to meet them. Whom do you seek, he says, and they say to him, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am. And your English version will say, I am he, which is fine, but but it is very cryptically just, I am. And then Judas was there, we're told. And in verse 6, it says, "When, when therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> Why? Some Something is being revealed there that Jesus, this Galilean nobody, itinerant teacher standing in a garden in Jerusalem, refers to himself as the I am and everyone around him falls back. There's no question this is Jesus identifying himself as the I am God. Now, back in chapter eight, then. He is interacting with the people as to who he is and where he has come from and where he is going. And he says to them to pick up in um, verse 23, Chapter eight, he was saying, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins unless you believe that I am. You shall die in your sins. And they're saying to him, who are you? Jesus says, I am who I have been saying from the beginning. 
He who sent me is true. The things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They're not clear on the fact that he is speaking about his heavenly father. Verse 28, then he says, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. He who sent me is with me. And later he will say, I and the father are one. Together they are the I am God, the ground of all being. And so sort of working from Exodus 3 to the John 18 passage, and then from the John 18 passage back into the John 8 passages, I think here again we have this significance of the I am of Jesus as the I am. And if you're not persuaded, go to the end of chapter eight, where he's continued to talk with him about who he is. And in verse 54, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not come to know him. I do know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. And then Jesus continues by saying, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you've, you, you think you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, Always a sign of pay attention to me here. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple. Um, no question what he's saying about himself here, I think, right? Jesus is the I am God. And that's why they are upset and ready to throw stones at him. You don't mess with pretending you're God. I mean, there is, you need to be sympathetic to these folks a little bit, okay? Jesus is saying something about himself that if it were not true, would be the worst sort of blasphemy. But it is true. Jesus is the I am God. The the one other um, piece of this that's fascinating is that the same imagery shows up in Isaiah's prophecy as well in the latter portion, beginning in chapters 40 and beyond. Um, I'm hesitant to push it too far. The linguistic construction is a little different in Isaiah than it is in Exodus. It may just be the difference between, you know, 17th century English and 21st century English, for instance, that you say things slightly differently, you write things slightly differently. Um, but, I, but I still want to be careful. Um, nonetheless, there are several passages in that Isaiah uh, stretch where God is identifying himself. And I'll just go ahead and point you to a couple of them. Isaiah um, 41, um, where God is being identified or really identifying himself as um, the sovereign God, the ruler over all things. Um, and in verse four of chapter 41, then he is the God who has performed and accomplished. He calls forth the generations from the beginning. And, and as there is a question, who is this? 
And the answer is, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. That's the I am kind of imagery. In chapter 43, verse 13, you have a similar notion. Even from eternity, I am, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? One other sampling in chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called, I am. I am the first, and I am the last. Um, I just think, while I, well, I don't want to push the Isaiah passages too hard, I, I do think you've got this picture um, that links Jesus very clearly into this this picture of the I am God. Um, that's who's that's who's incarnate, the one who is the ground of all being, um, and before whom we would rightly tremble. But he has come and tabernacled among us, and he is the one who then is being about to be lifted up. Um, in chapter 9, we have this story uh, of the blind man being healed. Jesus as the light of the world, giving light to this blind man. And doing it the way he typically did with the blind, which was to spit in the dirt and rub mud in their eyes. Um, if it's never struck you, it's not a very pleasant experience to have Jesus heal you. <laughs> um, and this imagery of grace is is quite striking. It does bring uh, Flannery O'Connor's writings to mind. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is famous for the violence of her images of grace and of rebirth. Rebirth often is pictured by death, but the violence of grace is palpable in Flannery O'Connor's stories. And and again, this is common to us, but if you want to be healed by Jesus, if you if you want to come to him, son of David, have mercy on me. I am blind, give me sight. Uh, he's likely to spit in the dirt and rub mud in your eyes. Um, that's what he does here, but it's wonderful. <laughs> let him do it, you know, let him do it. Um, and then you just get this great interaction between this man and the temple authorities. Uh, you know, pick your favorite line. They ask him, who did this? What do you say about that guy? And the blind man says, I got no clue about this guy. All I know is I used to be blind and now I can see. Okay. That's about the best I can do for you. Um, there are some other great lines in there too, but it is interesting that at the end, there is the question of who's actually blind and that the blind man who is healed and given sight does now have sight, not just because he has gained physical sight, um, but because he has spiritual insight and he ends up at the end worshiping Jesus, the son of man. Um, meanwhile, those who are accusing and condemning this blind man um, and casting him out of the temple are blind. And and yet they're saying to Jesus, you don't think we're blind, do you? And Jesus says to them, last line of chapter 10, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you think 
you see and your sin remains? Do you have enough insight to see that you are blind? A tremendously powerful episode here. Um, and then in chapter 10, yet another wonderful image. It begins by Jesus warning about false shepherds. The kinds who have just kicked the man out of the temple. And then he presents himself as the door to the sheep in verses 7 and 9. And then in verse 11, presents himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own, my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Of my own initiative, I lay down my life. There are always these moments where, where Jesus is looking at the cross and seeing the cross before him. And uh, no one but he at this point knows that's what's there or realizes it at least. And again, let the, let the imagery do its work. Um, I doubt that any of us grew up with sheep. I don't know. Anybody, anybody grow up on a sheep farm? In this group, um, stay with the agrarian imagery in scripture. Okay. I, it's funny. Um, the translators have to struggle with this. There's a point I know. Um, there are points in the, in the translations where the imagery is that of fruitfulness and it gets changed into the language of productivity. And I go, mm, no, no, this is not about, this is not about production and images of, of machinery. This is about fruitfulness and images of trees and plants and seeds that die and grow. And, and here we got the same thing. Don't turn this into an industrial image of the plant manager and a bunch of people at machines um, and have Jesus say he's the good manager. No. Let's just do the work we need to do to get to know sheep better and understand as best we can what the work of a shepherd would be. And let the imagery do its work. And let it keep running. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Um, finally, uh, there is the, the affirmation of Jesus as the Christ, um, and also the affirmation of the oneness of Jesus with the Father. Um, in chapter 10, just look at verses 24 and 25. Um, the Jews gather around him and said to him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, this is just a, Jesus has been clear with them. And he says, I've told you, but you don't believe. The problem is not that I need to say anything I haven't already said. And what has he said? I mean, the implication is clear enough. Yes, he's the Christ. 
the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness to me. You don't believe either my words or my works because you're not of my sheep. Verse 30, I and the father are one. And again, they take up stones to stone him. They know what he is saying. And he deflects it, but he doesn't deny it. That is a theme throughout John's gospel. Um, I can't take the time right now to, 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 to develop it, but let me just give you a few passages if you want to look at these on your own time. Um, just starting in chapter 5. Verses 17 and 18 in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And there's a lot more than this, but just to give you a couple of hooks. In chapter 8, verses 26 to 29. And again, 42 and 54. And and if you have a look at that, notice the responses of the people. Typically, when Jesus identifies himself clearly with the Father, the response is, uh, John draws the emphasis on the, on the enemies who want to destroy Jesus. But throughout these same chapters, there's point after point after point where John presents the people as marveling, as curious, and ultimately as believing. There's six or seven places where people believe, including occasionally a Pharisee like Nicodemus. Um, the people are really divided. Sadly, particularly from John's perspective, late in life. John lives long enough to see the sect of the Nazarene become Christianity and and the followers of Jesus become known as Christians and the good news of Jesus spread to the nations and become a religion of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews, but there is this sad reality of the Jews as a people largely rejecting Jesus. Now, what Jesus is particularly upset about in the midst of those developments is that the eyes of the people are blind. The priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders of the people are instruments of deception and disbelief. Um, it, it is this terribly sad story within Jewish history, all of the characters, all, Jesus himself, obviously, his parents, his brothers, his followers, both male and female, the early believers, the entire community are, are Jewish. And, and the question of how his own Jewish people will respond then is, is very palpable to John, who himself, of course, is Jewish. And he laments what he refers to as this Jewish response, even though his account is frequently marked by fellow Jews who believed um, as as the story unfolded. Uh, Just one last little thing, if I can slip this in, in terms of the responses. In chapter 7, when they're in the temple, in, in the Feast of Tabernacles, um, we have a couple of interesting responses. One is they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Verse 25, chapter 7, some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And look, he's speaking publicly. They're saying nothing to him. Do the, ruler, do the rulers really not really know who this is? Is it the Christ? 
And then they say, but we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he's from. Now, later, verse 41, well, let's say verse verse 40, some of the multitude, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. It's got to be the Christ. Still others were saying, well, but the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Doesn't scripture say that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there's a division among them. They're not sure what to make of him. In verse 52, when Nicodemus is trying to speak up, his fellow Pharisees say to him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search the scriptures and you will see no prophet comes out of Galilee. What, what do we got? We got one group of people who, who miss Jesus because of biblical ignorance. Back in verse 27, they think that according to scripture, we're not going to know where the Christ comes from. Whether or not they know where he came from, we don't know, but, but their issue is they don't, they don't know their scriptures. But over in verse 41 and 42, we've got people who do know their scriptures. They know where the, the Christ is supposed to come from. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. What they didn't know was the historical or, if you will, sociological knowledge that might have actually stunned them and made them pause and go, oh, oh, he was born in Bethlehem? Oh, I didn't know that. But it's just very interesting to me that you've got these two types of ignorance and each stands in the way of faith. In neither case is scripture or Jesus inviting a leap of faith. In both cases, What's being invited is a thoughtful, knowledgeable step of conviction. We know who this is. We know what the scriptures tell us we should anticipate. And we know the facts about this guy. Those things come together in such a way that there is this very compelling case that this is the Christ. Add the kinds of works that he's doing and the teaching that he's giving. Good reason to be looking to him and knowing him to be the Christ.